Hi, everyone, and welcome to the In the Shoes of podcast, where I make it my goal to see life as much as possible from someone else's point of view. Just like we all have a unique heartbeat, every single one of us sees life only from our own perspectives. Think about it. Can you see and process life exactly as Elon Musk sees and processes life? The answer is you can't, and it applies to every living conscious being here on this pale blue dot. Holy shit, have I got a show for you today. I have a handful of authors that I put in my top 10 list. And my guest today is seriously in the top three echelon. No joke. I'm pretty sure he deserves some award for that, but I don't have any money. So words at this time will have to do. I'm speaking with Christopher Moore and you should read his books, like all of them. I started recording mid-conversation because Why would I deprive Christopher Moore fans of his thoughts on just about anything, right? Including Los Angeles, which is what we happen to be talking about when I hit the red record button. To have gotten better to where you don't, your lungs don't burn, you know, being there. my, My problem with LA is driving there, you know, which is just personal to me. People who really don't mind driving you know, it's, uh, they don't mind it, but it's just so stressful. You know, like I live in right in the center of San Francisco and I would say I walk to 99% of the places I go, 90% of the places I go. Um, or, you know, and, and my first few years I would, if it was far, I would take a bus. Cause at that point there was no Uber or Lyft or anything like that. After talking about LA, I wanted to find out if it was true that Chris's life reflected that of Tommy's in Bloodsucking Fiends when he moved to San Francisco. He was, of course, much younger back then. Yeah, the character the character is, is based on, I think, sort of how I was at the time. My experience doesn't parallel to that, obviously. Unless Christopher Moore actually became a vampire when he moved to San Francisco. I'm just putting that out there, not trying to spread any rumors or anything. But being a kid from, from a, you know, a small factory town in the Midwest and, and coming into California and, and the way Tommy reacts to the world is sort of, uh, that's, that's parallel with my experience. And certainly his, um, you know, he runs a night crew at a very young age and that was my experience as well. And, and so all of the grocery stuff that happens in that book, um, is based on my experience. And, and so, yeah, that's probably, that's the most autobiographical character I've ever written, but it's me at 19, not me at, you know, 60. So. Oh yeah, totally. Well, one time I was out in San Francisco and I thought I went to the Safeway where Tommy supposedly worked. Well, that's a real place. I mean, it's, and it's the only one that I think is right across from the water. So if you were at one that was across from Fort Mason in the water, you were there. Dude, nice. That was admittedly a pretty cool moment for me out there. Is there one specific character that you relate more closely with? There's everything's a snapshot in time. And so, you know, my characters, a lot of them, I, I think just because of the, the function of how they react to the world and they're always sort of, you know, hapless guys with limited skills, which is sort of how I view <laughs> myself. Um, but uh, Charlie Asher was really, I was trying to define what a beta male was because it hadn't been uh, 
sufficiently defined for me among human beings, um, you know, sort of, and I really did, a, you know, quite a bit of research looking for it, you know, but I had written a book called Fluke and, and which had a lot of evolutionary biology in it. And I spent a lot of time with scientists and, um, you know, in the field dealing with things like elephant seal uh, rookeries and, uh, and whale behavior and stuff like that, where there really is hierarchical, uh, positions of, you know, an alpha female or an alpha male and a beta male and so forth. And, and that hadn't been sufficiently defined for me in, uh, in sort of human culture. And, and so that's what Charlie Asher was really, I wanted to build that character into someone who, who uses his imagination, um, basically is, is the big teeth of his survival, which is how I defined the beta male is the fact that they weren't the fastest, or the biggest, um, or the strongest, but they were the ones who could look a far enough ahead in the future to go, you know, maybe chasing a mastodon with a pointy stick <laughs> is not the best strategy for survival. Right. And, um, and so they survived. And in, in the natural world, there's always a lot more beta males than there are alpha males. Sure. So somehow they're passing on their genes, you know? So that was basically where Charlie Asher came from. And I wanted to have a character that that could, you know, sort of rise to the occasion of, of, you know, this sort of wild supernatural uh, challenge that would come to him. And also, I mean, the original thought for, for that book, for A Dirty Job, was I probably wrote in, on a pad of paper in like 1998, and it was just, what if a hypochondriac got the job of being Beth? <laughs> you know that's yeah. where that book begins and and so everything else is is filling in to make that into a story that's got dimension yeah and that's that's where charlie comes from so certainly he has aspects of my character and and but in other ways he's he doesn't and you know i i tend to i like to write characters that differ from me physically quite a bit like i my um fool in a couple of my books is tiny and i'm not tiny um, but I liked the idea of, of really making it, you know, that, that character of the gesture physically power, powerless as well as politically powerless. I'm not entirely sure why I kept going with this line of questioning. However, I still wanted to find out if just maybe he was an amalgamation of any number of his characters. You may find this as well that, you know, people want to make everything autobiographical oh, of course and and you know that's certainly I, you know if 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 you're a literary novelist it's always considered your first book is always supposed to be autobiographical and that's why you have so many you know sort of not particularly insightful coming of age books um and occasionally somebody will will hit a a nerve with something like and, and i remember in in my career the sort of coming of age books that really hit the uh, American popular culture were uh, Bright Lights, Big City, and Less Than Zero in the in the late eighties. We had these these guys who just sort of had this uh, introduction to to almost anarchistic drug culture and and so forth. And and but that's the literary tradition. You know, if you're the kind of guy, I got an MFA and I'm going to write novels, and then I'm going to go teach in MFA programs. Um, Whereas those of us who are out in the genres, you know, we tend to be like, well, I'm not really going to be able to apply much of my life experience into writing this Viking 
Um, and, and so you make a lot more stuff up and, and you just use your experience the way an actor would use the, the, the Stanislavski method to say, okay, what, what emotionally do I have that, but, but that, that relates to this character's situation, but not so much autobiographical. And, and you also run out of stuff really fast if you keep writing. You know, I used all the jobs I had ever done as an adult by the time I finished my third book. Um, which was Blood Sucking Fiends, and I had to learn some other thing to write about. So I had um, my main pilot in my fourth book, is a, or my main character in my fourth book is a pilot, so I had to learn enough about flying aircraft to make him, him credible. And I talked to a lot of pilots, and I hung out with pilots, and I learned mm -hmm. to fly a helicopter a little bit, and which is not something you want to learn to do a little bit. <laughs> um, that's the other thing about it is you can't, you can't, your stuff can't be autobiographical. I guess it could be, but you, you know, I don't know how interesting it would be because you admittedly are going to spend a great deal of your time in a room by yourself making clicking noises on a keyboard. So, so, you know, that's why in the old days, adventurers used to go adventure and writers used to write about them, you know? Um, and it was only probably in the late sixties, early seventies that people started having adventures and writing about them as well. Well, yeah, that, that makes sense. So I, I really want to talk about the book, a dirty job. It's so visceral yet. So damn funny. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience with hospices and how you incorporated them into the book? That really came out of experience, at least, uh, you know, I, I said basically I had written the what if, you know, in hypochondria, I got the job of death, but I didn't write that book for, for a number of years after I had that idea. And in the intervening time, my mother had, had um, died of cancer and I went back to Ohio and took care of her for the last six months of her life. And, um, and it was just me. I was the primary, primary caretaker because I'm the only kid. Um, and then uh, a couple years later, my wife's mother um, got pancreatic cancer and, and she was called to go take care of her. And I was sort of the emergency backup care person. And, and although she's the youngest of four, I think her mom called her because she had had experience. She had helped me with my mom in the last month or so. So, so watching the hospice workers work with my mom and my wife's mother and, and sort of the, those moments that, that come f become really vivid when someone's dying. Um, I wanted to put those in the book. I wanted to, to show sort of what I had seen and what I experienced. And, you know, there's, there's little conversations that the people who come to visit when someone's dying have that are drawn from actually me just eavesdropping on people that were coming to visit, you know, my wife's mother and just these, this weird sort of non sequitur things that these old ladies were saying to each other because they shared so much history. They had this shorthand. And, um, and so a lot of that stuff, uh, was just experience. It was just stuff that I saw and, and it probably didn't have as big a role in the, in the book as, as I gave it, I mean, it probably could have, the book could have done without those moments, those little quiet moments of, of people in rooms dying, you know, but that was as important to me and as all the flashy, dark, you know, sort of macabre things that were happening out in the world um, and, and making those fit together. You know, one of the things that you've, you find or I've found is that if you're going to write stuff that's supernatural and weird and you're asking people to believe really insane stuff, then the real stuff has to feel very real because they can go, oh, yeah, sure. That seems completely real. That's emotionally honest 
um, in its own way, I guess I'll buy the fact that they're, you know, giant crow women living in the sewers and stuff like that. So, um, <laughs> It, that's that's sort of my take on it. Is so in that in that particular case, while most of the book is obviously imaginary, it comes out of using that that tool of this is my experience. How to how can I apply that? Rather than make the book about me, you just say you know this is an emotional or or historical experience I've had that can fit into this story. Um, I think it's a big mistake to make the book about you. Um, and it's not that you don't have anything to say. It's just that it's not about you. Um, it's about a reader and, uh, probably the, you know, probably the biggest mistake I see among young writers is they don't, that they're all they're doing is thinking about themselves. They're not thinking about communicating to someone else with this experience that is going to happen for the first time for the reader in their own environment. You know, it's completely separated from the writer right so it sounds like you're conscious of how it's going to affect the reader and what kind of emotional response it's going to invoke are you conscious of the impact you want the reader to have or when you're writing do you just get into the zone and kind of let the characters develop themselves you do let the characters run a little bit because otherwise they don't have a personality, but you direct them the same way, you know, it just imagine if you're directing a film, you know, you're going to direct performances and that's why you can see the same script done by different actors and directors. And it seems like a completely different play or movie. I try to be conscious of what I'm doing. I remember having this sort of wide awake, you know, like, Oh my God moment. I was about 20, 526 and I'd known for some time that I wanted to be a writer and I was reading I think a story by F Scott Fitzgerald and and I I had a paragraph that sort of set me back on my heels because of its impact and I thought oh my god he did that on purpose and he has always known that and I just found out this minute when I read this paragraph that you can do that right and but but so sometimes you have those revelations when you're learning the craft but when you set out to, when I set out to write a book, I, I have something that I might want to accomplish with each scene. And, and sometimes it's going to be a plot point and sometimes it's just going to be an emotional moment. And uh, that's particular, very particular to Lamb. It has a lot of scenes that I just want you to have that experience, you know. And it, it may be only three or four paragraphs, but you're going to have, and it might be, you know, it, it just cracks people up. I may write a whole scene just because it has a particularly funny joke at the end. Now, you know, in the, in the best of worlds, the scene does all of those things, but you can't always, you just have to have a single purpose going into it. And, um, and so, yeah, a lot of, most of that stuff's on purpose. You know, you get stuff happens by accident. Sometimes I'll be sometimes surprised when a reader says this part really, you know, impacted me or touched me but usually that's more about their experience than it is about your intent gotcha yeah well one of the things that came to mind and spoiler alert for those listening who haven't read the book clam but you totally should you may want to skip the next minute or so one of the things that came to mind was the end of lamb when biff jumped off the cliff um that was super powerful to me the setting too the way it was so dark it was just palpable even right now, t 
talking about it affects me. Well, again, that that goes to that there was an intent there, and the intent was, and and it may have been in a way an a, a failure of imagination for me because, you know, as you ask yourself the what if questions of putting a story together, you know, what if you were, you know, that book starts out with what if you were Jesus's best friend, and you were going to use that to get girls. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, but you were always going to be like the, like the best friend of the quarterback. You were always going to be the guy, you know, the, you were always going to be the wingman yeah. and that was just the way it was. And you, but this is your best friend, right? And this is a, your best friend. Who's basically the conscious of consciousness of humanity, you know, who's, who's, you know, main doctrine is love one another and be kind you know, so, you know, when you start doing those what ifs, then you say, okay, what if I have this best friend that I go through the, you know, my entire life with this best friend, and then what would it be like to lose that person? And I honestly thought I wouldn't be able to handle it. And that's how the story ends, is that the main character can't deal with it can't deal with the magnitude of of the loss and and so you know that that comes through it's on purpose but it's just basically because i went okay if what if what if what if and what if that happened i don't think that i'd be able to deal with it you know it would be such a devastating loss that you know you just want to euthanize yourself to make the the pain stop and that's sort of what happened wow yeah that's intense and i would have never guessed that either it's really good to know and a good practice to ask the what if questions when writing. Switching gears here, is there anything else you would have liked to be aside from being a writer? Well, I, you know, I, I think that, I, I don't know. I, I, I think that it takes a certain, it takes a certain drive and desire to be able to want to do something and be decent at it. And, um, there's other stuff I like to do and, and, and I'm okay at, I'm a, I'm a pretty good photographer and I might've been able to make a living at that, but I don't think I, I loved it enough to pursue it. And I, in fact, I know that, I mean, I tried to, to do that and I just kept sort of shrugging and going, okay, I don't, I don't want it badly enough. And I went to school for photography. So I, you know, kind of went across the country to a place where I thought, yeah, I'm the hot shit in this little town that I grew up in. But then I got there and everybody in my class was hot shit in the little town they grew up in. And they liked it a lot more than I did. I mean, they were, you know, you'd go to parties at this school I went to, you know, and everybody would sit around in the kitchen and talk about developers and stuff like that. And I'm like, seriously? Um, <laughs> I like taking pictures, but that's really nerdy. <laughs> right. um, but that that's sort of what separated them from me. And, um, and I basically was bailing out my photography assignments by writing clever captions, you know, at least for the first semester anyway. Um, uh, so, so I mean, there are other things that I, I sure would have loved to have done. I, I just am, I'm not good at any other thing. I mean, this is the only thing that I'm good enough at to, to have achieved any sort of success at. So, so, but I mean, I, I was a DJ for a while and I was okay at that. And really? if I had, you were a DJ. Uh, yeah. And if I had really wanted to do that, if that, if I wanted to be a radio guy, I mean, I, I, 
quick thinking thinking enough and my voice when I was practicing was good enough and and you know I I could have done those things but I just didn't I don't think I wanted bad wanted it badly enough so yeah it was sort of this or or you know nothing I mean but the but that said the stuff that I was doing to make a living at um, I, I made peace with that. I did things that I really didn't like to do. Like I sold and I was an insurance broker for a while, which I really hated. Um, it was good money, but I really hated it. I cannot see you as an insurance broker at all. <laughs> What's that? I, I know, I but it can't. was, it was, it, it was, you know, I was, and I was really too young to be doing it. I, in fact, I, I would have, you know, friends say, well, you should go into real estate, you know? And I said, I, would you buy a house from somebody that looks like me? I look like I'm 12, you know? <laughs> um, and I did at the time. Yeah, I was in my early twenties. Yeah. And um, the, uh, but it was so it was so disingenuous to me. I mean, you you would I I sort of touch on it in my book Coyote Blue, where you put on a face to meet a face. I mean, you'd go into a a house, and if they needed you to be a Republican, that's what you were that day. And if they needed you to be a Democrat, that's what you were that day. If they needed you to be Catholic, well, you know, God bless. Um, <laughs> right. Whatever, it, because it didn't matter. You know, what mattered was that they signed and gave you a check. And, um, you know, you didn't lie about the, I mean, and the guys that trained me were like, you know, never lie about the product. Everything else is on the table. <laughs> so, <laughs> <Wow>. uh, <laughs> so um, that, but, but it was highly unsatisfying. I, you know, I developed a really outrageous drinking problem just dealing with that um, or not dealing with it as it were. So, so anyway, yeah, I, I think that, that I, I came to writing sort of after I'd crashed my life on pretty much all fronts at age 30. And, uh, and I went, okay, this is something that you always told yourself, you know, you could do, you better really put your head down and do it. And that was when I really started getting my, my shit together and writing my first book. Oh yeah. Were you ever scared of like, what if I don't make it? What if I don't make any money off of this? Oh, dude, I, I've written 16 bestsellers and I'm still scared of that. Um, <laughs> Holy shit. Where's the hope for the rest of us then? Seriously. I, I, yeah, there's no there there. It's still, you're, I'm still convinced that I'm going to fail every time I start in, really? in the beginning, middle and end of every single book I've written. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. You know, that's amazing. I, I hear that from a lot of people who I consider to be at the top of their game. Right. Uh, so... Maybe there's something to it. Well, and the, and you and there's a point too, and and this is it's sort of happening to me as as I, I guess, get into the twilight of my career. Um, there's a point where you, you know, my wife says every time she goes, "You say that every book," and I go, "No, but this time it's really true." And you start to convince yourself, "Yeah, this time it's really true." There's a part of it that makes you, I think, drives you to make whatever you're doing better. I mean, you can't. You have to. There has to be some balance. You can't let it paralyze you and that's what really writer's block is i think garrison keeler once said i think it was the best definition of writer's block is expecting yourself to be better than you are now my definition of doing a making a great project is setting something you're not sure you can do but um then you have to do it you can't go oh my god it's not good enough and not finish it and that's um and that's sort of where people are that, you know, they just expect themselves to be better than they are. And there's times when you just have to write the crap down to get to anything that might be good. Okay, let's pause the tape right there a little bit. These are some great quotables right here. Let's just reiterate. Making a great project is setting something you're not sure you can do 
but then you have to do it. You can't go, oh my God, it's not good enough and not finish it. There's times when you just have to write the crap down to get to anything good. I'm going to repeat this because it's really awesome, right? Making a great project is setting something you're not sure you can do, but then you have to do it. You can't go, oh my God, it's not good enough and not finish it. There's times when you just have to write the crap down to get to anything good. I think that can be applied to just about anything in life, right? I think we need to call Tony Robbins up and have Christopher Moore get on stage with him. Wouldn't that be rad? I don't know if they'd really mesh, but you know, maybe, I don't know. Um, and, and, and so that's a, that's a constant balance, um, as well as the, the balance between the humility it takes that you have to bring to the page in order to make good art or tell good stories and the complete hubris and arrogance that it takes that someone would want to pay you for something you just thought up. You know, and that's a constant, you know, that's a it's constant a act, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it really is. It's just, it's sort of like a, you know, it, it's like a scale that clips back and forth like a metronome. It's like, okay, cause you're not, there's no balance there. There's right. just, there's just certain, you know, it's, it's a swinging pendulum and you just get your work done sort of at that point where the pendulum's in the middle. Um, and uh, you have to learn to, to do it, but it's, it's not by any means, anything I'm mastered, it's just, I know I've gotten through it before. And that's, and that's what you get with the experience. That's what anybody that you talk to is going to have is there's like, well, yeah, I know I can do it. I still, it might be horrible, but I know I can do it Yeah, because I've done it before, you know? Yeah. And that's so interesting too, that you, you're talking about like walking the line between on the one hand filled with hubris and on the other hand, still with humility and, and really whenever an artist puts out anything it's there's a cer certain amount of vulnerability there because it's like look what i made to the world and how's the world gonna react to what i you know it could be like a, this you know your kindergartner the drawing uh, a picture and putting it on right. the fridge or whatever who knows but uh, yeah your mom rips it off the fridge <laughs> take this shit away exactly <laughs> yeah so that's that's how it is but i i like that All right, that does it for part one of the three-part Christopher Moore interview series. Stay tuned for part two, where we'll get into a little bit of politics, a little bit of what pisses off Christopher Moore, what uh, and what brings him joy, things like that, you know, and a number of other things, of course, such as traveling around the world to research your your next writing project. It's pretty fascinating stuff, so check it out. See you later.